Okay, all right, we're back in business. Good evening, everyone. So our topic for tonight is Jerusalem 1945 through 1966. And this will be the last session we do that covers Jerusalem from a chronological point of view. After the new year, we'll be back in business. We're going to discuss specific locations. Um, I'll mention them at the end of tonight's session, what those are for those who are interested. So uh, we begin where we left off last time, towards the end of the war, World War II. When, uh, during the wartime, Jerusalem was a happening place. The economy was good, and there were many celebrities and ex-monarchs and wealthy people parading their way through the luxury hotels of Jerusalem, specifically the King David. Um, and it was a quiet time because all the fighting is elsewhere until 1944. In 1944, the Irgun begins its revolt. Menachem Begin, having arrived in 1943, begins his revolt uh, in, uh, in the land of Israel. And a CID officer of the British police is assassinated on the streets of Jerusalem. Lehi, the Stern gang, although Stern is dead, tries twice to assassinate High Commissioner Harold McMichael on the streets of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is becoming a center of action, of violent action, of Jewish uh, insurrectionists against British control. The hunting season follows, and we spent a whole session on this. We discussed the history of Zionism. What was the hunting season? When the Haganah and the mainstream Jewish authorities were hunting members of the right-wing underground to hand them over to the British. So this happened all over the land of Israel, but especially on the streets of Jerusalem in late 44 and early 1945. The purpose was because the war was not yet over and the the anti-British activities of the Irgun and Lehi were poisoning the atmosphere of relations between Jews and the British and the thinking among the Haganah and the Jewish agency officials was we can't afford to alienate them because they're going to win the war and we need them on our side when the political outcome is decided in the immediate post-war era. Members, individual members of the Irgun and Lehi who end up being imprisoned at Acre Prison or in Jerusalem at the Russian compound, etc. Okay. Then competing British ideas were in play as the war was ending about how to govern the city. Who lived in Jerusalem at this time? There were 100,000 Jews, 34,000 Muslims, and 30,000 Christians. 100,000, between 90 and 100,000. McMichael, the outgoing British High Commissioner, wanted a British-run state of Jerusalem. In other words, the British control the whole city. What happens to the rest of the country is a matter for further speculation, because they're already discussing issues of partition. But Jerusalem will be governed by the British. The incoming High Commissioner, Viscount Gort, wanted partition even of Jerusalem between Jewish and Arab sectors, with British control only over the holy places, only over the holy places. Then, after the war ends, the Haganah has a change of attitude. Jewish agency officials have a change of attitude. They recognize that the British are not siding with the Zionists and not pushing for, forward towards statehood. And so even the Haganah joins in the, in the revolt in what was known as the United Hebrew Resistance. And we spent a couple of lectures a few years back discussing this United Hebrew Resistance. They destroyed on December 27, 1945, the CID police headquarters at the former Nikolai Pilgrim Hostel in the Russian compound. The Russian compound will be a key location in the late 40s in the build-up to the war and during the War of Independence. 
ultimately who wins? The Jews win, and they control the Russian compound that becomes part of the state of Israel. In January of 46, the Irgun attacked the prison, which had been previously the Marianska hostel for female pilgrims, again, in the Russian compound. So multiple attacks on British headquarters, police headquarters, and prison headquarters. Today, that location, of course, is the museum for the underground fighters. And I'm sure some of you have been there. I will say that of all the the locations in modern Israel that I've ever been to, so we're putting aside like the Kotel and religious, uh, you know, putting that aside, the one location in so-called modern Israel where I was most overcome by emotion is that prison and that museum. When you're in the gallows, where they killed the Olei HaGardom, you, you go into where they were hung, uh, that where I was most over, overcome with, by the uh, feeling. Is that Russian Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, General Montgomery, the winner of the Battle of El Alamein, arrived uh, in June of 1946. And he said right off the bat when he got there, the British don't control Jerusalem. Who controls Jerusalem? The Jews do, because we're afraid to touch them. In other words, they think that they're invincible, and they are invincible because we haven't done anything to stop them. But Montgomery is ready to lower the boom. He's going he's to really hit the Jews hard. The gloves come off in Operation Agatha, also known as Black Sabbath, the day on which, Saturday, June 29th, 1946, when basically the entire Zionist leadership was arrested. Who am I excluding from that arrest? There were two main figures who were not arrested, Ben-Gurion because he was out of the country, and begging because he was still in hiding. Okay. Um, the response by the Jews to Black Sabbath was the bombing of the King David Hotel on July 22nd, 1946. This was a major escalation in the violence and the number of casualties happening in the city. Montgomery cracked down by having special forces patrol the streets by the creation of Bevengrads, named after Ernest Bevan, who was the British Foreign Secretary. But these were heavily fortified installations all over the seam line of Jerusalem, uh, checkpoints, barbed wire, the like. Jerusalem was no longer a comfortable and livable city. It was becoming a, a fortress where the British, who were nominally in control, are in fear of their own lives. The next thing that would happen that would inflame the situation was the Major Farran episode. Roy Farran, who was uh, one of these special forces police officers who was patrolling the streets, and they were arresting Lechi uh, teenagers, including Alexander Rubowitz, who was taken out into the Judean desert and beaten up until he died. And his body was never found. It was probably eaten by jackals. And this was a major uproar. We spent a session about this, uh, Major Farron. Uh, he was whisked out of the country. He was arrested and put on court-martial, but was, he was acquitted for lack of evidence, sent back to England. And what happened? The Lehi sent a, a, a mail bomb to his house, and it killed his brother, not him. He went up, ended up moving to Canada and became Minister of Justice of Alberta. Uh, and died not that long ago, maybe a decade ago. Okay, so... Things are really bad in Yerushalayim. The next major episode was in response to the execution of an Irgun member, the Irgun bombed the goldsmith house, 
killing 14 British officers at the British Officers Club on King George Street. The Goldsmith House, if you're familiar with King George Street, you're getting uh, going up the hill, so sort of past the synagogues, past the, the, the hotels. You're getting towards Ben Yehuda Street, maybe a couple of blocks before Ben Yehuda is the Goldsmith House on the corner. Um, it was blown up, major loss of life for British officers. After the partition vote of November 29, 1947, Jerusalem became a central theater of the Civil War. It had been the major theater in Jewish terrorist activities against the British. Now it's going to be a major place of operations for Jews against Arabs and Arabs against Jews. Within the old city walls, the Jews are in a precarious state. Why? Because there are only about 1,500 Jews. And how many Arabs are there? 22,000. So it's a you know a 12 to 1 or 13 or 14 to 1 ratio inside the walls of the old city. It does not bode well for a continued Jewish presence. And we know how the story ends. They all get, get expelled. Okay. On December 2nd, so we're talking about three, four days after the partition vote, three Jews were shot dead in the old city. Arab gunmen then attacked the Montefiore quarter, the windmill area, Mishkanot Shananim, on December 3rd, and attacked the Jewish quarter with major gunfire on December 10th. So anyone who lives on the seam near Arab areas is in danger for their lives. Um, yeah. The elite. Yeah. Was it touched by this? Once Which elite, there? Arab or Jews? Let's take Arab and let's take Jews. So Arab, yes, and the Arabs started leaving. We're going to mention shortly that the Arabs fear they're losing the city because of a mass exodus, and the wealthy Arabs are going to Cairo, Beirut, and Damascus. They're leaving the country, not just leaving Jerusalem, they're leaving the country and going elsewhere because they had property elsewhere. The elite Jews are not really going anywhere. The Jews are basically stuck. Uh, yes, you can try to get out, go to the coastal regions of the country, but you have to pass through Arab territory. It's a little dangerous. There's not that much Jewish traffic already from the partition up until statehood. I mean, you could go, but it was it was dangerous. Um, okay, so Arab Christians, like Arab Muslims, are are leaving in significant numbers. Now, some will stay behind. But don't think that there is any disparity between Christians and Muslims on the nationalism issue as though the Christians are less likely to oppose Jewish statehood. They were just as opposed, if not even more so. Okay. Well, uh, on December 13th, the Jews, tired of being attacked, punch back. And the Irgun attacks the bus station outside of the Damascus Gate, killing five Arabs. Now, the Damascus Gate is the lion's den. I mean, that's, there are no Jews there. Uh, they go into the enemy territory and they blow up the bus station. In the two weeks after the partition vote, the death toll was 74 Jews, 71 Arabs, and nine Britons. That's a lot of dead, but we're going to see over the next six weeks, it's even higher. So Jerusalem was becoming divided, and there was the evacuation of mixed neighborhoods. There were mixed neighborhoods, or neighborhoods that Jewish and Arab communities come together on the scene. Well, now there's a clear division. Jews in some areas, Arabs in others, never together, never together. Okay. On January 5th, 1948, the Haganah attacked Katamon. The Haganah goes on a little bit of an offensive in the southern and western sectors of the city. And unfortunately, they killed 11 innocent Arab Christians. And when you kill our innocent Arab Christians, that's going to inflame the Arab Christians against you. So it's not uh, the best situation. 
Well, a desire to open up a path to, you know, to get to the southern reaches of the city because there were Jewish neighborhoods further to the south. Okay, well, uh, this accelerated the Arab flight from the city. On January 7th, the Irgun attacked an Arab outpost near Jaffa Gate because the Arab outpost at Jaffa Gate was preventing the resupply of the Jewish quarter. How do you get into the Jewish quarter? Well, you can go through the Sharash Pot all the way down below, but that, that's really inaccessible at this point. You can go through Zion Gate, but that requires going up Mount Zion. You can go Jaffa Gate, which was the main entrance, and go down King David Street, or David, or David Street. Uh, that's the way to get there. But there was Arab gunmen blocking the path, so the Irgans had to punch their way through. So the cable car will play an important role going across the valley onto Z- Mount Zion into Zion Gate. We're gonna, when we discuss Mount Zion, we're going to spend some time discussing the cable car. Okay. The Z- uh, on February 10th, Abdel Qadr Husseini, who was the leader of the, the, the brigade of Palestinian Arab fighters in Jerusalem, attacked the Montefiore Quarter near the windmill. The Jews responded, but unfortunately, the British fired on the Jews. Snipers fired from as far as the King David Hotel. Now, how far is the King David Hotel from the windmill? It's about three-tenths of a mile. So we're talking, you know, 1,500 feet, 1,800 feet, and snipers were firing on Jews, British snipers. The Zionists were vulnerable in Jerusalem because you had to pass through a significant length of Arab territory to get there. As Yitzhak Rabin later recalled the, the events of 1948, he said the Arab plan was to choke Jerusalem's 90,000 Jews into submission, that they were going to starve us to death uh, and choke us into submission. Well, it wasn't only the Irgun that was involved in you know, terroristic type activities using bombs to blow up innocent civilians. Uh, the Husseini crowd did the same thing. Abdel Qadr Husseini had his men attack the offices of the Palestine Post, which is now the Jerusalem Post, Okay, which was the main English language newspaper in Jerusalem at that time on February 1st. And then the major attack, which we'll discuss later in the year in some length, was on Ben Yehuda Street. And the Ben Yehuda Street attack on February 22nd killed 52 people. Other than the King David bombing, which killed 91, the Ben Yehuda bombing was the largest single uh, casualty count of any attack in the history of the land of Israel uh, in, in that in, in that century, more so than any other you know PLO episode in later years. All right. Well, as I mentioned, the Arabs felt that they were losing the city because the social elites were leaving. Katamon was emptied. Sheikh Jarrah was emptied. The rich went to Egypt, Lebanon, and Syria. But the Jews also felt that they were losing the city. Both sides regard their situations as very precarious, thinking that the other side is winning and we're losing. Why do the Jews feel that they're losing? So first of all, because the city was still cut off from the coast and it was in, it was in bad danger. With little pro- the, the old city was a, had little prospect of holding out. So even if the main body of Western New Jerusalem could hold on, the old city was certainly not going to or seemingly not going to. And even the new city was in serious jeopardy. Ben-Gurion, recognizing how difficult circumstances were and how it was impossible to continue along the same path and that a change of strategy was necessary in April decides to go on the offensive. Operation Nachshon. Operation Nachshon was designed to clear a pathway to Jerusalem. It was part of a broader pa- a package of Plan D. Uh, plan D was to eliminate the Arab population from sensitive areas 
which would have been a thorn in the side of the future Jewish state. The Battle of Castel was a critical battle. Some, I'm sure some of you have been to the Castel. There's a memorial to it on the side of the highway off of Route 1. So the Battle of Castel took place on April 3rd. This was a rare example where it changed hands multiple times in the same week. The Jews won the Battle of the Castel on, on April 3rd. But then another battle took place on April 7th and 8th, and the Arabs won. But the Arabs suffered a terrible casualty. Who died? Husseini. Abdul Qadir Husseini, okay, was their hero. It was like their Lahavdil Moshe Dayan, whatever it is. Uh, and he was shot by a, a Jewish soldier who sort of stumbled across him. And it was sort of an accidental encounter, and he was quickly shot in the, in the fog uh, in the early morning hours. So the Arabs, having won the battle, but finding the body of their leader got all flustered, they all left to do the funeral in Harabais on April 9th. So the Jews came back and destroyed the castell and burned everything down. But uh, this led to the inflaming of passions. When the leader is dead, lost on the battlefield, everybody's angry. The next major event uh, was Der Yassin. Der Yassin happens on the day of Husseini's funeral, on April 9th, where a significant number of casualties are, are taken by the Arabs. The, the nature of the Battle of Der Yassin we've discussed in the past, we don't have to reha- re- rehash it now, but there's a machlokes arayom until our very day about you know, who was guilty of what atrocity. But the point is, the Arabs are angry, and they want to lash out at the Jews, and they will do so. And they will do so five days later, on April 14th, with the convoy of doctors and nurses of Hadassah Hospital, going from uh, the western part of the city across a fairly dangerous stretch of road to get to Mount Scopus, the buses are attacked. There's a five-hour gun battle. The British do not do all they can to prevent Jewish casualties. Shame on them. Although some uh, British officers later will evacuate the wounded and the survivors including a guy by the name of Churchill, much to his great credit. But uh, it was a horrible day. 78 Jews died um, in this long-running gun battle. So the city is becoming a a, a major war zone with horrific casualty counts. Um, Yeah. Uh-huh. No, not at all. Ben Gurion was a territorial maximalist who wanted as much as he could get, and if it required displacement of peoples, he wasn't averse to it. It wasn't it wasn't a, an absolute strategy across the country, but if if it needed to be done, he he did not oppose it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Okay, so but speaking of Ben Gurion. On April 20th, Ben-Gurion makes an announcement to his, uh, his Haganah underlings. I want to go to Jerusalem for, to spend the Seder uh, uh, there. I want to spend Pesach in Jerusalem. It's like the president of the United States saying, I want to go to Iraq or Afghanistan for Thanksgiving to do- dole out the, the turkey and the gravy. All right. Well, uh, Rabin protested and said, this is nuts. You want to go from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem where the road is closed and we'll need an armored convoy to get there. You could die in the process. We're endangering soldiers to make it happen. And he said, no, I want to go. So he went. 
So Ben Gurion's last trip to Jerusalem before declaration of statehood was to go for Pesach on April twentieth. Okay. When 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 he got to Jerusalem, Ben Gurion supposedly in one of his more colorful quotations said about the Jews of the city, 20% of them are normal, 20% of them are privileged, meaning the university professors at Hebrew U and the students, and 60% of them are weird, referring to the Hasidim. So that was his assessment of the Jews of Jerusalem. Fine. Uh, On May 14th, the British are ready to leave. So Sir Alan Cunningham, who was the last high commissioner, leaves government house, Amon HaNatsiv, early in the morning, and he goes by armored convoy to the King David Hotel to inspect the troops for one last time. Then he drives over to Kalandia Airport in the northern part of the city, flies to Haifa, and goes on a boat and waves goodbye. That's Alan Cunningham's departure from the city and from the country. Well, as the British leave, and there are 250 vehicles and a whole host of, uh, of personnel are evacuating the town, there's a mad scramble by the Jews and the Arabs to occupy those locations that the British had held on to until the last minute. Most importantly, the Russian compound. And the Jews win that battle. Interesting little side point. Uh, President Truman recognized the state of Israel as the uh, de facto authority in the country. Not the de jure authority, which the Soviet Union would say, but the de facto authority awaiting democratic elections, 11 minutes after midnight uh, Israel time, 11 minutes after 6 p.m. New York time. This infuriated the American colony. The American colony we spoke about in the past was established by the Spafford family, a bunch of Meshuggah uh, millennialist Protestants. And Bertha Spafford, who was an old lady at that point, was very angry about this. Now, remember, her family had come to Palestine and to Jerusalem in the 1880s, thinking that the second coming of Jesus was going to be preceded by the arrival of the Jewish people and their conversion to Christianity. So, in theory, the American colony should be in favor of Aliyah Zionism, not necessarily political Zionism, but Aliyah Zionism as a way forward to the end of times, to the apocalypse. But over the decades between the establishment of the American colony uh, and 1948, their attitude completely changed. And while they still flew the Red Cross flag to indicate neutrality, Lamaisa, they weren't neutral. Lamaisa, they loved the Arabs. They were pro-Palestinian and anti-Jewish, anti-Zionist. And so Bertha Spafford um, had the flags like at half-mast when the state of Israel was established. And in July and June, she flew back to America. Had not been to America in a long time. She flew back to America to go to Washington to try to uh, uh, lobby President Truman not to support the state of Israel. That here the American colony in Jerusalem opposes the state of Israel and the American government is supportive of the state of Israel. Truman refused to meet her. She never got into the White House. Okay, so that was uh, Harry Truman once again doing the Jews a, a favor. Okay, well, not really, 
Right, right. I mean, there was a time when she was a big deal, when the American colony was, was in the early part of the 20th century was the American representation in the Holy City. But by that point, they were just a front group for the Arabs. So King Abdullah of Jordan had made a deal with the Zionists to avoid fighting. But with Jerusalem about to be lost uh, to the Jews, Arab pride forced Abdullah to get involved. Who led his army? Sir John Pasha Glub. John Glubb was the leader of the Jordanian Arab Legion, funded by, trained by, run by the British. So instead of it just being a civil war, there's going to be a real war, army versus army. By May 16th, the Jews controlled a few key places. The Me'asharim police station, which was on the border between the two halves of the city, Sheikh Jarrah was in Jewish hands. Ultimately, they would lose it. And Sheikh Jarrah ends up becoming part of East Jerusalem after the armistice. But for a while, the Jews controlled it. The Russian compound, the YMCA, and everything south of the old city was in Jewish hands. What's not in Jewish hands? The old city, Augusta Victoria, and sort of the eastern suburbs, the Arab suburbs. Ramat Rachel would be held in bitter fighting um, and that would become the southernmost outpost of Jewish Jerusalem, with the border, when it was uh, crafted by Abdullah Tal and Moshe Dayan, would be circling around like a little little bend to include Ramat Rachel in the state of Israel. Okay. The battle to save the old city was desperate and bitter. There were insufficient forces. Rabin was furious. With, uh, with David Shaltiel, who was the commander of the Haganah in Jerusalem, that only 190 men were, were, be, were able to be spared to try to burst through, uh, whether from Jaffa Gate or Zion Gate, to save the old city's community in the Jewish quarter. It went back and forth, I'm not going to go through all the details, between May 16th and May 28th. By May 28th, it was all over. Uh, the Jordanian Legion dynamited the Churva Synagogue on that date, and the last Hasidic rabbis of the Jewish Old Quarter uh, waved the white flag and surrendered. What happened to these people? So about 1,200 Jews were marched down the slopes of Mount Zion, and many of them were taken into captivity as prisoners of war, um, despite not being combatants. They were civilians, but they were taken as prisoners of war to Jordan and returned in 1949 after all the armistices were signed. Wasn't there a lot of pressure for them not to uh, capitulate? Yes, there was tremendous pressure not to capitulate, and many people died in the fighting in that last week, even though they were down to essentially no manpower and hardly any bullets. There is a memorial to those who died fighting in the last, the last bitter round. If you go in the Jewish quarter, up the, from the Churva uh, Square, up the hill by the, the four synagogues, there's a memorial, a little little square, a little plot. It looks like a, like a grave almost, uh, where I think the bones had been at one time. Uh, and now that's the memorial to those who died fighting to try to spare the, the, the Jewish quarter. Okay. Well, although Glub claimed to be a decent man and you know loved the beauty of Jerusalem and the glories of Jerusalem, and was not a Muslim. He was, you know, he was a Christian, although he had philo-Islamic tendencies. Uh, he allowed for the destruction, the ransacking of 22 out of the 27 synagogues in the Jewish quarter. And for the first time since 1187, Jews lost ac- access to the Kotel Amaravi. Was he a mercenary? 
basically, I mean, it was, I wouldn't say mercenary in the sense of like illegal, but the British government allowed him, you know, he was on loan to, to the Jordanians. Okay. Glob used Latrun to block access to, the, to, to Jewish Jerusalem. And when we discussed the history of the war, in some length, we spent a significant amount of time discussing the battles of Latrun, where Ben-Gurion is sending Ariel Sharon and inexperienced, many Holocaust survivor, recent arrival fighters, poorly trained, poorly armed, in the heat of the day, to try to attack Latrun, to save, to break through to Jerusalem. It was a failure. This was the the uh, not the finest hour, probably the poorest hour of Ben-Gurion's military career was the Battle of Latrun. But the Burma Road made that all redundant. The creation of the Burma Road, which was a windy alternative south of the main highway, was finished on June 11th. The significance of that date was the ceasefire began on that date. Had it, had it waited even one more day, the UN authorities would have prevented its completion. Okay. In June... Count Folk Bernadotte arrived on the scene. Was Bernadotte a good guy or a bad guy? Okay, so Bernadotte saved Jews during the Holocaust. He was a humanitarian. Swedish, yes. However, however, in his capacity as a so-called neutral arbiter in Jerusalem, nobody likes a neutral arbiter. Everybody wants the neutral arbiter to favor their side. So if you're a Jew, and he seems to be uh, giving too much to the Arabs, even though he may think it's a fair deal, you're infuriated. And you might want him dead. Okay, so Bernadotte shows up in June, and he proposes a new partition of Jerusalem in which the entire city would go to Abdullah as part of uh, the West Bank going to the the Transjordanian state. And that Israel will exist, but it will not have the Jewish part of the city. There will be Jews in an Arab country. This might sound absurd to us today, but at the time, was it entirely absurd? No. I mean, there were Jews living in, there were Jews all over the Arab world, the Islamic world. Now we're accustomed to it being the case in the post-1949, post-19, early 1960s when the Jews left Morocco, that basically there are no Jews in Arab countries because it would be too, too dangerous. So to have 100,000 Jews living in Jordanian Jerusalem today would seem absurd. But back then, it wasn't so absurd. The Jews don't like it, and it's not a fair deal, because in fact, Abdullah does not control the whole city. He only controls part of the city. So it was rejected. The Jews refused. After the ceasefire ended, the Arabs attacked again. They attacked the new city through Zion Gate, and also from the north. And Actually, Jewish Jerusalem was in danger of being severely crippled and falling because of sort of bad planning by the IDF uh, in July. But things were, able, were stabilized. There was another ceasefire, this one longer lasting. And Bernadotte showed up again in September with a new proposal. This time it would be to internationalize Jerusalem. But while that's better than it all going to Abdullah, Still, from a Jewish point of view, the internationalization of Jerusalem is totally unacceptable. Totally unacceptable. So, uh, as Bernadotte was driving from Government House, which is to the south, towards Rechavia to meet with Dov Yosef, Bernard Joseph, the Jewish, the, uh, the, the Israel's military governor of, Jer- of Jerusalem, his vehicle was stopped 
along the road in Katamon, and members of Lehi assassinated him. He was killed by so he was killed by Jews. Folk Bernadotte. His assassination and the assassination of Lord Moyne in 1944 are the two famous Jewish killings of either British or international figures of renown as part of this fight for independence. One of the killers was Yoshua Cohen. Ben-Gurion claimed to not know who the killers were. And Lehi was disbanded after this episode. I mean, it was falling apart anyway because Israel now was a country and this is an underground fighters organization, but he, he disbanded Lehi, just like the Irgun was disbanded after the Altalena episode, so Lehi was disbanded after the Folk Bernadotte episode. Um, and he claimed he didn't know who the killers were, but Yoshua Cohen became his personal bodyguard at Stabokera during his retirement. So here, the guy who actually pulled the trigger was hanging out with Ben-Gurion for a whole decade years later. All right, but he, he said he didn't know. Yeah. Who was supplying material to the Israelis and also the Arabs? I would assume were the British, but the Israelis. Okay, so, the so the material is coming from a few sources. Number one, indigenous manufacturing in Jerusalem of weaponry, the bullet, the bu- the bullet, the bullet manufacturers and, uh, and the like. I mean, that was a big deal, but it was also coming from the, co- the coastal areas where the Haganah and later the IDF had not vast storehouses of material, but had stuff. And where were they getting it from? So the Czechs sent a lot of stuff. Uh, stuff was being illegally shipped from America. Uh, there, was, there were various sources of arms stolen from the British. There were, there were ways. Okay. There was an embargo, but the embargo was violated left and right by people who were willing to run the embargo. Yeah. I just read the new book now, which refers that those weapons were supposed to be the Germans, but the Czechs, and they had them here. And Stalin directed... Stalin decided to send it to the Jews. Send it to the Jews, but it was originally... And yeah, yeah. The Germans lost the war, so they had all these weapons. Right, right, right. So this way they were able to get money uh, and give them weapons to the Jews. At that time, Stalin was supporting well, Stalin, Stalin had a brief, a brief window when he was pro-Zionist from 1947 to 1949, but, but it came to an end. From the Czechs, yeah, yeah, sure. So now let's keep going. The armistice, the armistice called for UN supervision of the truce with a UN headquarters at Government House, where the British High Commissioner had previously been located. Now it'd be a UN headquarters. Uh, the deal called for Jewish access to the holy places of the old city and the cemetery on the Mount of Olives and easy access to Mount Scopus. This was never implemented. Why? Because, listen, both sides, but especially the Jordanians, violated the deal. And it's not a surprise that everybody was violating the deal. The original uh, arrangement of the division of the city was done on November 30th, 1948, when the Kav Ironi, the city line, was drawn by Moshe Dayan and Abdullah Tell, representing the Jordanians. Uh, they, they did this in, uh, in the no-man's land in Musrara. Both sides got together. They had a map. The map had a ratio of 1 to 20,000. Now, 1 to 20,000 is, is a pretty good map, but it's not perfect. And the thickness of the pencil will make a difference in a few meters here and there. So there will be discrepancies. There's a a blue line, a red line, different colored pencils. These matters had to eventually be adjudicated 
sometimes by force of arms, later on. But there will be a no man's land separating the two sides with certain areas designated for United Nations control and the Jewish area on Mount Scopus, which we'll discuss when we get to Mount Scopus. Okay, well, that line was never intended to be a permanent political border. It was intended as a temporary military line on the basis of the disposition of forces as they were that day. But sometimes the temporary becomes the permanent and becomes sacrosanct in the eyes of the international community not to be violated by one inch. Okay. Well, border neighborhoods became slums. Jewish border neighborhoods became slums because you never knew when the Jordanians would take pot shots uh, at random straight uh, people walking the street, pedestrians, motor vehicles, whatever it is. It was dangerous. Uh, For example, the Masharim area was not a safe place. The Mir Yeshiva was basically on the border. I've spoken to people who learned of the Mir Yeshiva in the early 1960s, and they said Jerusalem was a dusty border town, and you you, you don't want to get caught on the wrong side of the parking lot because you you were in danger. Um, on December 11th, 1949, Ben-Gurion declared Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. The capital of Israel, from the establishment of the state until December 11th, was a matter of uncertainty, ambiguity. We're going to spend a session a few months from now discussing the Knesset, the building, the physical building of the Knesset, where the Knesset was located prior to its current location, which was Beit Fruman on King George Street, and where it was located even before that, in Tel Aviv, bouncing around. So we'll, we'll spend the whole session on Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, as represented by where the parliament is located. But this happens December 1149, with the transition happening in, this, in the uh, winter months of 1950. As we move forward, I want to just get through... In the next few minutes, the, the interwar period, 40, 49 through 66. Uh, in 1951, there is a major event that happens in Jerusalem, but it doesn't happen in Jewish Jerusalem. It happens on Harabait, in Al-Aqsa Mask, and that is the assassination of King Abdullah. Why is this relevant for our purposes? Well, because Abdullah was a man who could strike a bargain with the Jews. Yes, there was a war, but the war was not fought to the absolute death. There, were, uh, there was a certain civility, I might say, to the battles between the, the Israelis and the Jordanians, the likes of which did not exist in the battles with, let's say, the Arab irregulars or with the Egyptians or with the Syrians. And so the death of Abdullah was a potentially disastrous moment for Israel in the sense that it could have led to chaos on its on, its, on the border of its capital city. As it turned out, it worked out fine because his son, Talal, took over. Talal was a lunatic. He had schizophrenia. He almost killed his own wife. And he abdicated a year later. And so a young boy, 16, 17 years old, Hussein becomes the king of Jordan. And King Hussein was a reliable partner with the Israelis for a long time off the books, you know, off the record, and then on the record by the 1990s. Okay, so that was, you know, an assassination in the heart of, of, of Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. Hussein was the grandson of Abdullah. So he is 
the Hashemite heir to the throne. Right. Who, who ordered this assassination, by the way? The speculation is that it was ordered by King Farouk of Egypt and the Mufti. One of the last important acts of the Mufti uh, in his long and not so illustrious career. Okay. By the way, Hussein survived the shooting because he was there and he was hit by bullets. He, was, he saw his grandfather die. His grandfather had told him, according to legend, to wear your medallions, wear your, your like, military medals on your chest. And a bullet ricocheted off the metal, and that's how he lived. So says the legend. I don't know. Maybe be a, a apocryphal or like a midrash. I don't know. So what else happens during the interwar period in Jerusalem? So one important thing, 1949, the establishment of Har Herzl, Israel's military cemetery. We will spend a whole session in about eh, six weeks from now, maybe more, on the establishment of Har Herzl as the burial place of Herzl, the removal of his coffin, of his remains from Vienna to Jerusalem, and then the building up of a military cemetery. Then, in 1953, there was the establishment of Yad Vashem, lower down on the mountain, just below Har Herzl, there's a thematic connection between the two being on the same mountain, that there is Shoah, and then there's Tekuma, but the Tekuma, the, the revitalization of Jewish nationhood, happens only with paying of the price of the loss of soldiers' lives. Then, in 1961, the major event in Jerusalem is what? The Eichmann trial. The Eichmann, Eichmann in Jerusalem. So this is when Jerusalem becomes the center of world attention again. That it, for, you know, for 13 years, things were relatively quiet in terms of international news coverage of the city, that the 48 war was a big deal. Okay, and 47, 46, when the, the bombings of the King David, news outlets had a major presence in pre-state Palestine and then early Israel during the war, but they kind of forgot about Jerusalem. It wasn't so important for the next decade. In 56, the action was in New York at the U.N., uh, with Abba Ibn and on the battlefield in Sinai and at the canal. The Knesset played no role. The government of Israel, no, nobody was covering it from Jerusalem. But in 1961, all the American and European news outlets are sending representatives, the newspapers, the TV, the radio, they're all there. Jerusalem is a hopping place with international journalists. Okay. The next major event in Jerusalem was in 1964. What happened in 1964? The papal visit. Paul VI arrives in the Holy Land. Now, notice I used the term the Holy Land. What did I not say? Israel. Because the Vatican, the Holy See, does not yet have diplomatic uh, relations with Israel. That will not happen until 1993. 45 years after Israel's establishment, it finally occurs after long negotiations over issues of property, over interreligious dialogue, with with the the rabbinical council getting involved. Okay, but in 1964, Paul VI wants to come to Palestine, Holy Land. So he comes. He crosses into Israel at Mandelbaum Gate which we'll discuss shortly, what that is and why that is. Um, But he does not recognize the government of Israel as a Jewish state in the Holy Land. So there's no reception by government officials in Jerusalem. It happens instead in a random place, in Megiddo in the north. Why Megiddo of all places? I'm not really sure. 
but it was his uh, insistence that it not happen in Jerusalem. So as a result of that, the chief rabbis were not very happy. The Sephardic chief rabbi Yitzhak Nisim said, if he will not visit me in my office you know, at the chief rabbinate in Jerusalem, I'm not going to go to visit him at Megiddo. I'm boycotting. So there was some ill will between the Jews and the, the church over the nature of this visit. One important aspect of this visit is something we'll discuss at greater length in about four weeks from now, when we discuss Mount Zion. Why Mount Zion? Because the Pope's road, the papal road, which is the road from Jewish West Jerusalem up Mount Zion to Dormition Abbey and the Tomb of David and the, the Room of the Last Supper, uh, that road was really a dirt path that was not traversable by modern vehicles from you know, time immemorial until 1964. And it, it was really dangerous for Jews to go up to Mount Zion. We'll discuss that. So Israel collaborated with the Jordanians in a very rare show of bipartisanship to allow for the paving of this road to allow the Pope to go up to his holy places on Mount Zion. The significance of that is that that road would then be useful during 1967 war in the Israeli conquest of the old city. So sometimes things work out in your favor in the long run. But we'll get, we'll get to more of that when we discuss Mount Zion in a few weeks. Okay. The next significant moment is 1966, when the Knesset building opens. As I mentioned, the Knesset was in other locations prior to its spot in Givat Ram, in a building paid for by, the, by Sir James Rothschild. But it opens in 1966 with a big, big public gatherings, thousands of people arrive, and representatives from the parliaments of, I think, 70 other nations showed up for this festivity. It happened in 66. Had it happened in 67 or later, they wouldn't have come, because at that point, Jerusalem becomes treif in the eyes, or Jewish Jerusalem, Israeli Jerusalem, becomes non-kosher, treif in the eyes of much of the world, since Israel's annexation of the full city. But as long as Jerusalem was only West Jerusalem, it was less problematic, and people were willing to send diplomatic representation uh, to the opening of a parliament building. Okay, in the time we have left, let's discuss Mandelbaum Gate. What's the story with Mandelbaum? Who was Mandelbaum? So he was a, a, a German-Jewish uh, industrialist-slash-rabbi who made Aliyah in the 1920s, and it was too crowded in Me'a Sha'arim, in the sort of the uh, heavily, densely populated areas of the Haredim. And so he built a house for himself and his 10 children, and grandchildren, whatever it is, further to the north and to the east, along what would become the seam line between the Jewish and Arab neighborhoods. So this was the Mandelbaum House. Uh, in 1947, the Haganah commandeered the house and used it uh, as a sniping location against Arab positions on the other side of the town. In the 48 war, the house was basically destroyed by shelling from the Jordanians. The only thing that was remaining standing was the gate and part of the facade of the house. So it became known as Mandelbaum Gate because of the Mandelbaum family house that had been there. Uh, what actually happened was a narrow corridor was established with barbed wire and fencing. And you can see pictures of it on, on Google. You take a look, Mandelbaum Gate. It was a two-way uh, a two-way street, basically. You could go from Jordan to Israel or Israel to Jordan only if you were 
an, uh, a neutral party, meaning a diplomat of, of this or that nature, of a neutral nation, or a rep- representative of the Red Cross and the United Nations, those were the people who could travel back and forth. If you were just a civilian with no uh, government responsibility, then you could go from Jordan to Israel, but you could not go from Israel to Jordan. And in fact, if you had any uh, Hebrew writing in your passport that you had been to Israel at any time, you could not get into Jordan. So you certainly couldn't go from Israel to Jordan via the Mandelbaum Gate, but you could go from Jordan to Israel. By the way, were there people who did that? So the answer is yes. Two, well, more than two varieties, but I'll tell you two varieties of people. One, you have Israeli Christian Arabs who were allowed for religious devotional purposes to cross back and forth uh, as a sort of a humanitarian gesture to get to Church of the Nativity, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The, the, the spots that are important to, to Christians were all in Jordanian hands. And if you were an Israeli Arab and you were Christian, you wanted to go, accommodations could be made at certain points in time during the 19 years of Jordanian control of the West Bank. But other, another group of interest to us are non-Israeli Jews. Non-Israeli Jews were allowed to travel, let's say you're an American citizen, and your name was Goldstein or Goldsmith. All right, you could go, take a plane, fly to Amman, go to the West Bank, go to East Jerusalem, daven at the Kotel, not as a, an obviously Jewish-looking person with a sitter open, but if you were dressed in you know, casual touristy attire and didn't have any Hebrew books on you, you could make your way down to the Maghreb quarter, go to the Kotel, silently say a few prayers, Mishra Berach this, that, and walk away. I know one of my former congregants, she passed away a number of years ago from Park East. She told me in 1963, she went to the Kotel. I don't know how many Jews actually did that over the 19-year stretch, but there were some. And how did they get into Israel? They got into Israel via Mandelbaum Gate, and they had to go in that direction, Jordan to Israel, not the other way around. So that was uh, the story of Mandelbaum Gate. Now, by the way, and with this, we'll close for tonight. Um, we're not going to discuss the Six-Day War. We've spent plenty of time on that in the past lectures. But one interesting little tidbit about what happened at the end of the Six-Day War. So Teddy Kollek was mayor of Jerusalem. He was elected in 1965. And he would serve for 28 years until Olmert took over in 1993. So he was Mr. Jerusalem for, forever. Labor Party Knesset member, uh, Ben-Gurion's right-hand man, mayor of Jerusalem for a long, long time. And a, truly a Jewish hero. When the war ended... So he ordered this or that aspect of the border fortifications to be torn down because he wants the unification of the city. Instead of an east and a west, the Jordanian and Israeli is one united city of Jerusalem. So that meant knocking down walls that separated neighborhoods and eliminating barbed wire. And he ordered the knocking down of Mandelbaum Gate. So uh, one of the IDF officers asked him, "Who, who authorized you to do this? Nobody. I, I, I'm doing it myself. We can't allow the place to become Hefker. You know, Hefker meaning ownerless. Like we have to stick a claim to it because if we don't, who knows what the, what the diplomatic outcome of the war will be. We have control of it now, but tomorrow or a week from now or a month from now, some 
self-imposed international solution might take it away from us. So we have to establish facts on the ground in all these contested parts of the city. So he knocked down Mandelbaum Gate. And someone asked him, do you even know who Mandelbaum was? And his response was, I don't think he was just some German doctor. <laughs> so here Teddy Kalik didn't even know who Mandelbaum was. And he was the mayor of Jerusalem. He knocked down the whole thing. So it's a little funny anecdote about the demise of Mandelbaum Gate. But uh, there is a, re- a remnant of it. Not, it doesn't really exist anymore, but you can go to where it was. And you'll see there's a sign of a plaque. Here was a border crossing between Israel and Jordan. And on my last trip to Israel, I, I took a picture of it there. I like to go to these little curiosity sites whenever I'm, I'm in Jerusalem. Okay, questions? Just one thing. Yeah. If you could go Red Cross or whatever it is through the Mandelbaum Gate, yeah. I would think that was plenty of occasion, especially technology wasn't that difficult yeah. to forge documentation as Israelis would be able to go ahead. And I'm sure Palestinians the other way. Around. Okay, so if you're asking about espionage via uh, the border crossing, so there was some, there, there certainly was some, but the primary, uh, I wouldn't call it espionage, but uh, rule breaking or treaty breaking that occurred through the border crossing was the biweekly convoy to Mount Scopus, which was supposed to be a limited police force just guarding the site of the former hospital and university campus. In fact, Israel cheated the system for 18 years and was able to sneak up massive amounts of military, uh, material, uh, materiel and personnel in the most ingenious of ways of secret compartments and buses and fuel canisters and the like. And when we discuss Mount Scopus, I'll get into how they did that and how much they were able to bring up there. So there was cheating across the gate. You're absolutely right. 1964, I think it was, aside from here, yeah. towards, towards the border, I think it was a whole big thing in getting him back. Uh-huh. I didn't know about that. He came here from far up where he wanted uh-huh. On the border, far away once. I don't know. One more thing. Yeah. I believe even today the Christians do not refer to Israel as anything other than the Holy, the Holy Land. Land. Correct. It's not, I don't think it's a political thing because of the Pope. It's, it's, a, it's a religious thing. Right. But, but there was a real opposition to any reference to the political entity because relations did not yet exist. Okay, we'll stop here. See you. Uh, okay, the next session was supposed to be January 3rd. But it's not going to be January 3rd because I have Yosef Mendelovich coming to my shul to speak that night, uh, prisoner of Zion, uh, uh, Refusnik. Um, so it will be J- January 10th. January 10th, be here, everybody. Happy Hanukkah.